Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 48th episode of PEM Podcast, the Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Laurie, here with my schmabulous sister, Sandy. Um, we are, we have a really interesting case today. Um, so uh, I am fascinated actually by this case. Like I'm really quite fascinated because even for me, it's not necessarily super clear, um, which will be, yeah. Like I have my opinion, I have my thoughts, but um, we'll see, we'll see. Um, I don't have a book to promote today. <laughs> They're over there. The book you've stopped the writing. Show. You've just yeah. stopped writing. I'm done. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've been so buried. Um, we took a, a two week hiatus off last week uh, or the week before, or whatever. And um, I've been buried. You've been buried. Um, so we're a little tiny bit brain dead i think um uh yeah i finally submitted a manuscript i've been working on kind of nonstop. fingers crossed sequel to when for those of you that uh are when fans there's this will be the sequel so we'll see if it gets picked up by a publisher and if it doesn't i'm just going to self-publish it because it's a damn good book um anyway okay so i do have an anecdote i have a really cute anecdote actually so i was reading for a client, um, and, <clears throat> um, her father came in and when they barrel into me, they are so excited. Um, they're super enthused and, and very, very excited to kind of connect. Um, so I knew her dad was going to be talkative, which is always the goal, right. Is to try and invite someone in who's going to jabber at me. And, um, so the first thing he showed me was a newspaper and that usually means that they were written up in the newspaper. Um, so I asked her, I said, was your dad ever in the newspaper? Was he ever written up? Was there an article about him in the newspaper? And, um, she and her family used to live in Alaska. And she said, well, actually there was one article about my dad. He was an air traffic controller. And, um, there's a famous prank that was, um, <laughs> that was pulled on a town. Apparently there's an active somewhat active volcano, uh, in Alaska. And so, uh, her father, who was their traffic controller allowed for a guy to take up into a plane, um, a ton of used tires and he flew it over the volcano and dumped it in so that all this smoke would be generated. And people would think they all panicked thinking that the volcano was about to explode and it was just a prank. Right. So he got, he got written up in the newspaper. Um, and then, um, his dad's just kind of continuing to get her dad's continuing to give me a little bit of uh, proof here and there. And um, he put on her head a tiara and a sash across, <laughs> across her. And I was a little bit, I was a little bit hesitant because the night before I had read for a client who was having her 50th um, birthday party and um, her, I think grandmother was, was in and had put a tiara on her head. And I'd asked her, I said, uh, for your 50th, because she was playing this huge party, um, for your 50th, are you going to wear a tiara? She's like, oh, I'm going to pull out all the stops, right? So to see a tiara then the next night, um, I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, is this another metaphor? But he kept drawing my attention to the sash. So I finally worked up the courage and I said um, to my client, I said, were you ever in a beauty contest? And she went, immediately bright red, like just right. And so embarrassed. She's like, I can't believe my father brought that up. So in high school, she was a beauty queen, beauty queen. And, um, he kind of said it, like, you can sort of feel when they are 
giving you information that's kind of the family joke because uh, there's like a, a feeling of humor with it. So um, so he was absolutely outing her. Um, <laughs> you know, he was like, she's my beauty queen, queen, which I thought was really adorable. So um, be careful what you do in this life because the dead will remember and then they will up you to a medium someday. <laughs> I'm, in I'm not trouble. worried. <laughs> yeah. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all in big trouble, basically. Um, so that's the anecdote for the day. All right, uh, Sans, take it. This was such a fascinating case. So take it away. Okay, so I got intrigued by this story based on a Dateline episode that aired in January entitled uh, The Bad Man. And I ended up recording the episode because I was like, could be somewhat interesting. And then as I, I dove into the case, trying to find some research, um, like you, I, the, I found this to be very compelling. So it's uh, it's called The Brighton Axe Murder, and it's about uh, Kathy Krausnick. And on February 19th, 1982, Brighton, New York police officers responded to a 911 call at the Krausnick residence on Del Rio Drive and entered the well-kept two-story home. In the upstairs master bedroom, they found 29-year-old Kathy Krausnick dead in her bed from an axe blade embedded deeply in her forehead. For 40 years, this unsolved case remained cold until the fall of 2022 when Kathy's husband, James Krausnick, was tried and convicted of murdering his wife. What led to the devastating murder of Kathy Krausnick on that frigid Friday in the quiet suburb of Rochester, New York, and the ultimate conviction of her husband for the crime 40 years later? Well, hopefully Victoria can shed some light on that. Kathy Schlosser was raised in Mount Clemens, Michigan, the, oldest, the second oldest child in a family of six kids, including four girls and two boys. Her father, Robert, was a truck driver, first working for a company that transported concrete and later with his own gravel business, Schlosser Trucking. Kathy was vivacious, energetic, and engaging, and a friend to everybody, so it wasn't a surprise when she was a part of her high school's homecoming court. A year older than Kathy, James Krausnick attended the same high school, and his classmates considered him to be shy, pleasant, and athletic. The Krausnicks were well-known in the community because of their family-owned carpet business. Although Kathy and James did not date in high school, they became a couple while attending Western Michigan University and married in 1974. Shortly thereafter, the couple moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, so James could attend graduate school and secure his PhD at Colorado State University. Kathy found work as an orthopedic therapist, and in 1979, she gave birth to daughter Sarah. After James finished graduate school, the young family moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, where James was an assistant professor of economics at Lynchburg College. Two years later, James jumped at the chance to work for Eastman Kodak in Rochester, New York, as an economist because the position paid significantly more than what he was able to earn teaching. In late 1981, the family moved into a two-story colonial home on a quaint street in Brighton, just a short drive from the Eastman Kodak headquarters in Rochester. Despite having all the makings of an American dream, Kathy was unhappy living in the Rochester area. The days were dark and gloomy, and the frigid weather kept her and Sarah housebound. The evening of February 18, 1982, was unremarkable. The Krausnecks ate dinner around 6.30 p.m., meatloaf for James and Sarah, and egg salad on lettuce for Kathy, before driving to the bank in the lone family car to deposit James' paycheck. After a stop at a department store and a drugstore, they purchased some alcohol at a nearby liquor store, and once home, James made some shrimp for Kathy while she had a drink, and he enjoyed two beers. At around 10 p.m., the couple put Sarah down in their master bed, let the family dog, a golden retriever named Amicus, out, and then relaxed in the library while they watched some TV. At about 11 p.m., Amicus was let out again, and then the couple went upstairs, put Sarah to bed in her own room, and retired for the night. 
At around 6.30 the next morning, James put Amicus in the basement and left for work. After a normal day at Kodak, James left early to take Sarah to a podiatry appointment. However, when James returned home just before 5 p.m., he found the garage door and the interior door to the house open with glass strewn about the floor. Alarmed, he called out to his family and then ran upstairs into his bedroom. There he found Kathy in their bed with a long-handled axe protruding from her head. Panicked, James ran to his daughter's room and found her unharmed but dazed, snuggled up in the corner of her bed, fully dressed, wearing a red sweater over a pink sweater with blue corduroy pants and two pairs of socks. James hurriedly scooped up his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter from the bed, ran downstairs, out the front door, and across the street to the home of Eileen Marin Keating. When Eileen opened her door, she was immediately alarmed by the look of terror on James's face and his inability to speak. As James stood at the doorway clutching Sarah in his arms, looking traumatized, Eileen asked him whether something had happened to Kathy and whether Kathy was injured or worse, dead. Jim replied, I think so, her body is limp. As Eileen rushed to call 911, James appeared to be going into shock as he repeatedly asked Sarah if she was okay. Every time Sarah spoke to her father, James would cry and hug and kiss her. Sarah said to Jim, I'm glad you came home early today, Daddy. I couldn't find you. I didn't know how to call you. I didn't know what street to ride my bike on. Shortly after investigators arrived, they confirmed that Kathy had been killed by a strike in the head with an axe while she slept in her bed. Police on scene were able to briefly speak with Sarah about what she witnessed. She told officers that she woke up after her father had left and saw a person she did not know sleeping in her parents' bed with an axe in the head. Sarah told the police it was a man with a hammer in his head. When asked what the color of the man was, Sarah responded, many colors, and she could not see his eyes. Police concluded that Sarah was in fact describing her mother, whom she did not recognize because of the gruesome scene. The next day on February 20th, James failed to appear for a follow-up interview with the Brighton Police Department and opted instead to pack up and leave town with Sarah to return to his parents' home in Mount Clemens, Michigan. James also hired Michael Wolford, a Rochester-based attorney, to help shield his daughter from further questioning. James would go on to move from Michigan when Sarah was in grade school to live in Gig Harbor, Washington, where he worked as a VP of sales and marketing for a Fortune 500 lumber company. He married three more times, the second and third marriages were short-lived, and he is still currently married to his fourth wife, Sharon Krausnick. Authorities initially thought Kathy's murder was the result of a botched robbery at the couple's suburban home, and years of insufficient evidence and leads contributed to the murder remaining unsolved until 2015, when the Brighton Police and Monroe County prosecutors collaborated with the Monroe County Crime Lab and Dr. Michael Baden to investigate this very cold case more thoroughly. All of the physical evidence collected at the scene was sent to an FBI lab for analysis, which resulted in a finding that none of the items contained DNA from outside of the Krausnick home. In November of 2019, a grand jury indicted James Krausnick on one count of second-degree murder. They claimed that he killed his wife, Kathy, and after staging the crime scene to make it look like a botched robbery, he then left for work. The key evidence against James, all circumstantial, presented at the trial included the handle of the murder weapon and the surfaces around the Krausnick home had been wiped clean of fingerprints. The killer used two axes, each stored in the Krausnick garage, an axe mall to break the window to enter the home, and a separate long-handled axe to murder Kathy. The use of two axes to commit a crime seemed illogical to prosecutors. The evidence of a burglary made no sense. Instead, detectives concluded the scene looked staged as a valuable silver tea set was placed neatly on the floor next to a black garbage bag and money and valuables were untouched in the second floor bedroom where Kathy was killed. 
All of these portable items were left behind by the supposed intruder. And the shoe print on that black garbage bag resembled the boating style shoes worn by James, which would be an odd choice for a burglar to wear on a cold, wintry day in February. Investigators discovered that James never completed his doctorate because of his dissertation. He had been rejected while writing it and had to rewrite it, a fact that he did not disclose to the Lynchburg College and Eastman Kodak job applications, for which Kodak had questioned James about a few weeks prior to his wife's death. Prosecutors maintained that this was a point of contention between the couple, and a community center marketing pamphlet that offered marriage counseling was found in the Krasnick family car, which seemed to confirm their suspicions. James told police that he left the house for work at 6.30 a.m. on February 19th, which helped initially absolve him of the murder because the original medical examiner, Dr. Evelyn Lewis, calculated the time of death between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., plus or minus two hours. However, Dr. Michael Baden, a world-renowned forensic uh, pathologist, testified that he believed Kathy Krasnick died before her husband left for work. This conclusion was reached because the original medical examiner, Dr. Evelyn Lewis noted rigor mortis in Kathy's body the evening of her death, and that takes 12 hours to reach the level of rigor mortis. The defense proffered that Kathy had been murdered by a convicted sex offender, Edward Larrabee, who at the time of Kathy's death lived a short five-minute walk from the Del Rio Drive residence. A neighbor had witnessed a man jogging by the Krasnick home on the morning of February 19th wearing a gray sweatshirt and a royal blue ski mask. The defense shared that Larrabee often wore a ski mask when assaulting his victims. The defense also submitted to the jury that Edward Larrabee confessed to murdering Kathy Krasnick in a letter written while he was imprisoned uh, for the 1991 rape and murder of Greece, New York music teacher Stephanie Kuczynski. Larrabee died in prison before he could be arraigned for Kathy's murder. At James's trial, prosecutors countered that Larrabee was lying about his involvement in Kathy Krasnick's murder as his confession letter contained incorrect information that did not align with the facts of the case, including the physical description he supplied about Kathy. Further, Kathy had not been sexually assaulted at the time of her murder. The defense pointed out that Larrabee had been ordered to undergo chemical castration in 1981-82 to curb his impulses and likely wouldn't have been inclined to rape his victims. Despite the defense counsel's efforts to convince the jury that the evidence against their client was purely theoretical and circumstantial, 70-year-old James Krasnick was convicted of second-degree murder on September 26, 2022, 40 years after the death of his wife, Kathy. Sarah has stood by her father and continues to insist that he is innocent. On November 7, 2022, at his sentencing hearing, James told the court, I did not murder Kathy. I loved Kathy with all my heart and my soul, and I continue to be haunted by what someone, by why someone would murder such a beautiful person. With that, James was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Now 71, he's incarcerated at the maxim, Maximum Security Clinton Correctional Facility in Damora, New York. James' attorney, Michael Warford, plans to appeal the verdict and stated, we are confident that the conviction will be set aside by the appellate court on the grounds that the prosecution was not justified in waiting 37 years to bring this indictment. There was no new evidence, simply a new opinion by Dr. Baden. My sources for this story include the Democrat and Chronicle 1982 Axe Murder of Brighton, New York, What to Know About the Crime People in Trial by Gary Craig, 1-2023. The Democrat and Chronicle Brighton Axe Murder, James Krausnick's 1982 police statements reveal new details of Weiss homicide by Gary Craig, 129.20. Oakland Press, Michigan native convicted in Weiss 1982 axe murder in New York by the Macomb Daily, 928.22. People.com, man found guilty of 1982 axe murder of his wife after the case went unsolved for nearly 40 years. 
by Casey Baker, 92722. People.com, the 1982 axe murder of New York mom went unsolved for nearly 40 years, but now her husband is charged by Christine Pelsick, 1-2021. And finally, the New York Post, Kathy Krausnick's family recalls axe murder and justice finally served decades later, A Bad Man Hurt Mummy by Patrick Riley, 1-1923. So what do you think? You're muted. So no one knows what you think. <laughs> it's a secret. Um, it's a Victoria's secret. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've never used that one before. And I've never heard that one before. Um, anyway, you and I had discussed this, I believe yesterday or the day before. Um, and uh, you were convinced he didn't do it. I'm convinced he didn't do it. Um, there are a couple of things that um, have been noted in the casework that you um, picked out. Like one of the things that I question if he had been this mastermind of this crime, right? So I, I'm assuming this man has no previous history of being violent towards his wife or wives, right? No, there has yeah. been no okay. sociopathy. So like you don't go from, maybe we should go see someone because we're having trouble to here's an ax in the head, <laughs> right? And then lead this, you know, perfectly, uh, you know, uh, unviolent, calm, peaceful life for the rest of your life. Um, Let me just clarify that that pamphlet that the uh, prosecutors were illuminating mm -hmm. was actually a multi-service uh, pamphlet that that was promoting a community center that was nearby. Oh, I gotcha. That was like, you know, come for marriage counseling, come right. for Alcohol Anonymous, come for, right. you know, right. yoga. Right. And you even look at there are photos online of, of the couple. They're both leaning into each other. They really liked each other. Yeah. Um, I don't buy the, this sudden act, premeditated act of violence using an ax. It's just, that's just, <laughs> it's just too far of a leap from even a hidden discord between a couple. It's just too, too broad of a leap, right? You're going to strangle her um, in a fit of passion, you're not going to methodically plan out killing her with an ax, leaving your child in her bed, three and a half years old, right? With basically the front door open, glass on the floor, right? Yeah. All of and that. I, I believe her, his daughter had also commented that when she went downstairs to try and get something to eat, she saw glass on the floor and she didn't know where to walk because she knew glass right. on the floor was a problem. So she, that's why she spent her day right. in her bedroom, hanging out with her dolls. Um, right. Not sure what to do. Right. So <clears throat> that's just not a situation you're going to leave your three and a half year old in. And it, it, by all appearances, he was a very loving, doting father. Yes. Um, the other thing that really just doesn't make sense is that the handle of the murder weapon and the surfaces around the cross neck house had been wiped clean of fingerprints. If he did it, why wipe the surfaces clean? He lives in the fucking house. There's no reason to wipe them down. There's not even a reason to wipe down the axe handle because he owned it. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's just a detail that is one leap too many for me um, with this guy. Is people are their patterns. People really are their patterns. Even if you try and change, if you have a bad habit, if you have a bad, you know, quirk that you're trying to work on, you still at times fall back into that pattern. 
And these are things, patterns are things that people recognize and notice about you because all of that goes into determining your character. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I'm really, really not buying it because this is such a deviation from the patterns that he had established in his life. And afterward, um, the other thing was uh, where they were like, well, it's weird that a killer would use two axes, one to, you know, knock the door in or the glass out and then the other one to kill her. Well, my theory is, is that this was someone, I'm not sure if it was Larrabee or not. Um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't uh, get the version stands where he was walking in the neighborhood with a ski mask. He was, somebody saw, it wasn't that they pinned it on Larrabee that way, but, but one of the neighbors did see someone jogging by yeah, um, with a gray sweatshirt and a blue hockey mask yeah. on. Yeah. So was it Larrabee? We don't know. Okay. I, cause I didn't, I didn't get this, you know, boom, it was Larrabee right away. I didn't, but I did tell you yesterday when we were talking about it, I said, I feel it was a kid. I feel it was someone between the ages of 17 and maybe 22 who honestly just wanted to know what it was like to kill someone. Um, and uh, I don't think he was interested in um, uh, rape. I think he just really just wanted to know what it was like. It's a psychopath. He wanted to know what it was like to kill somebody. The other thing, though, that is interesting is that um, Kathy was found in her bed. She's dead, um, like she had been sleeping, right? So she, I'm assuming she's still in her nightgown, right? Yeah, the whole thing. She was in her bed, axe in the head. Yeah. Okay. She was killed while she was sleeping. Right. What I don't understand is why his daughter was fully dressed. She dressed herself. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Cause that was like, oh, like, I she really was, don't think he did it, but then I'm like, yeah. Oh. yeah, no, she was wearing mismatched clothing. Like, like, like a three-year-old would dress herself. I need, I'm cold. Let me put on gotcha. a sweater. And then she put on another sweater. Gotcha. Um, nothing was coordinated. Gotcha. And so when she says she saw a man mm -hmm. in bed with mom, with the ax hanging out, she's three and a half years old. Three and a half is about the furthest back that I have a, a vivid memory. And uh, when you and I, our family was living in Mexico city. Um, we had a home that was surrounded by a really tall gate. It seemed like it was 50 feet tall because I'm this big, yeah. but I remember, I remember the gate <clears throat> all around the house. And, um, I remember being on my tricycle and I remember hitting the gate opening and it bounced open and our dog, our two dogs actually ran off. Right. Um, and it was, a, it was a big deal because, um, it's Mexico city. And how are you going to get your dogs back? We got both of them back. We got both of them back, but, um, I knew I was in trouble. And so I remember, uh, Rosa, who was, uh, uh, our housekeeper at the time, she scooped me up and she took me and put me to bed. I don't remember her face. I don't remember much detail visually, but I remember her hands. I remember seeing her hands. Um, and I remember, feeling a little afraid. And I remember, um, I remember being put in, in bed and being told go to sleep basically, you know, like, let's not let this blame rest on you, little girl. Um, just pretend to go to sleep. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Sarah was conflating two pieces of information. One that are 
her mother, who she didn't recognize, was in the bed asleep with an axe hanging out of her head, and that she saw a man with eyes that she or saw a man that she couldn't didn't recognize and couldn't see his eyes. So I have a feeling that the three and a half year old mingled those two together to form one person. Well, you're also you're also taking all her various statements, and then the the police are kind of putting it together, right? That, th- that this is what. So right. isolated, they may be very much what you're saying, right? Exactly. So, um, so none of it to me s- says that he did it. Not none of his behavior afterwards. You know, you don't you don't kill your wife with a with an axe and then go to work. Yeah, you beg off, right? Yeah. You're like, um, hey, daughter, let's go to the zoo. And pretend while we're at the zoo that this terrible break-in happens, right? Because you can't be in front of other people. I mean, the man's clearly not a sociopath or a psychopath. He's clearly not. No. I mean, he, his his alibi was val- verified that he did go to work. Yeah. He did meet with the people that he was scheduled to meet with. Yeah. Uh, everything he did throughout the day right. was, his alibi was v- verified. Right, right. Yeah. And nobody noticed anything off about him. No. So um, I just, I'm just not buying that he did it at all. I think one of of the things that struck me was that uh, Kathy was a very outgoing, seemingly extroverted person. And and James strikes me as a very introverted person. Mm -hmm. So if you're coming upon something terrifying, like he Mm -hmm. did, I Mm -hmm. feel like the police really sort of took him to task for leaving town right away. But I think he was so terrified by the Mm -hmm. situation that he ran home to his parents in Michigan Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. with his daughter to shield mm-hmm. her, but also, you know, the shock of the whole situation. It also, also says fear that someone got yeah. into his house and killed his wife in her sleep. Who's right. to say that that same person wouldn't come after him? Exactly. And then on top of that, the next two marriages were short-lived. I'm sure he was trying really hard yeah. to not deal with what happened to him. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just it, PTSD. Me, it's Classic. Very, very much so. Very, yeah. very much so. But it, the police ended up making that suspicious. Like, don't make anything suspicious, right? True. Like anything. Why didn't he comply? So I, the defense basically said two things, which I thought was interesting. Like you, James never exhibited any kind of behavior right. whatsoever that suggests right. that he would have the ability to do what, what this right. crime was. Right. And secondly, that it was an opinion. There was no new evidence. And right. it was simply the opi- opinion of this famous pathologist mm-hmm. that was presented, which, which the the prosecution claimed you can pinpoint the exact time of someone's death. It's not true, mm-hmm. but he convinced the jury. He convinced the jury that this this expert uh, what knew what he was talking about. So James was convicted in many respects for circumstantial evidence and the fact that this town wanted the case to be finally closed. Mount Clemens. No, not Mount. No, Clemens. Rochester. Sorry, Rochester. Yeah, um, yeah. Brighton, Mount Clemens Brighton. is down the road for me, not too far away. So Um, do you think he'll win on, they are appealing the case. Do you? I kind of do. I kind of do because um, the circumstantial evidence just is really kind of flimsy. Um, And uh, I, I have a feeling now that the prosecution knows that the jury was convinced by the expert's testimony. You can basically find an expert that will testify, you know, So that guy's expert testimony was believable. Um, I find it interesting that the original ME medical examiner um, had a different opinion and it was a woman. Yeah. I wonder if it had been a man, if that would have been, you know, you know me, 
I, I, women aren't believed. They well, just aren't I, believed ever. I really, I really think, think crazy. the prosecution really wanted to have a solution to this case. And so they were going to find anybody to kind of right. corroborate their theory of what happened. Right. But it's just a theory. Right. It's, there's no hard evidence to point to it. So, right. Right. Um, you know, the other really sad thing that the Dateline episode, and, you know, I encourage anybody who's interested in this case to watch the Dateline episode. But the thing that kind of was heartbreaking was when James brought his daughter, Sarah, back to Michigan, and she was there for a couple of years, she's got very, very close to his mother, mm-hmm. um, her her mother's family also lived in the same town, but there was a shielding there, you know, and mm-hmm. I think James did it so that they wouldn't mm-hmm. question her about what happened to her mother. Right. Um, but this distance grew and it left the family, Kathy's family, really frustrated that there was yeah. this distance with their niece and their granddaughter. Right. And then James moved everybody to Washington, D.C., and his parents actually went with him uh, to to not D.C., I'm sorry, to Gig Harbor, Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he was surrounding himself with people that he knew he could trust right. and protect his daughter, not his right. secret, just right. this tragedy that had happened right. to him. Yeah. But unfortunately, Kathy's family feels he is responsible. And her 95 year old father was there at the trial and felt very victorious over the fact that his son-in-law was held, held culpable for his daughter's murder. Because he's been convinced. Yes. Right? He's been convinced by, uh, the prosecution. We've got a case. We'll nail him. Your daughter's, you know, your your daughter, your daughter's murder will have justice finally. Yeah. yeah. And um, whoever did it got away with it. Um, I just there's just too many, too many in in discordant parts of this to kind of lay at the feet of him, um, at the feet of James. It's just. You don't deviate from your patterns that dramatically and that violently without yeah. someone else noticing. I just, just don't, don't buy you. I don't buy you leave your three and a half year old in the house. Right. And then I don't buy that you're that good of an actor to run to the neighbor, completely mm-hmm. panic stricken, mm-hmm. crying, going into shock. Mm-hmm. If you committed this act, mm-hmm. you don't, you don't commit that act, go to work, act normal all day. Right. And then come and act right. Especially if you're an introvert, honestly. No. Truly. An extrovert, I could see that ha- kind of, you know, uh, an actor kind of doing that, a, a sociopath, a psychopath, maybe, but um, but I don't think he is. Like, he just, there's nothing about him that seems like he has that kind of an agenda. Yeah, I would agree. So, um, yeah, it's it's sad. That's sad. I, I'm hoping he gets... Um, I'm hoping he wins on appeal. I have a feeling that the appeal process is going to be um, somewhat long because I have a feeling if he wins on appeal, then the prosecution is going to appeal and it'll kind of go back and forth because they really, really, really want to want someone to pay for the crime. They want to close it yeah, and they want someone to pay for the crime. So I have a feeling that this is just going to carry on for a while, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Uh, hard, it, that's a hard case. That's a tough case. You, you know, like it's great when you know that the right person got nailed for it, but it yes. sucks when um, you're just someone who's caught up in uh, the An need agenda. to, yeah, exactly. An agenda. An agenda. Yeah. Perfectly said. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. 
bright and uplifting note uh, that we will end on. Um, great job, as always. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, are you staying cold? Are you staying warm? You guys have had some uh, cold weather it, there. I'm hot. It's oh, very, <laughs> very warm right now. <laughs> wow. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah, we're a little on the warm side today, too. So, um, and the, the boys are back in school, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, the joys of my nephews. We love them. We love them. Sometimes a little less, but we love them. <laughs> All good. All right, Sans. I love you so much. Uh, you thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for watching guys. And uh, we'll be back soon with another one. Doo -doo -doo -doo. All right. Take care. Bye.